there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. A doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. It's that time of the week again, cranking it up with Dr. Rasha Batar, Advanced Medicine. And, Doc, we have a, a really interesting story of someone you know, Cheryl Ackeson, one of the few real investigative journalists who went out on her own after she left the mainstream media because they wouldn't let her actually investigate. And she did a story just this week about Chuck Norris's wife who was dying nearly on death's door. They couldn't figure out what was happening. And it turns out she was being poisoned with each and every MRI session she was going to, magnetic resonance imaging. And I thought to my to myself, Dr. Batar, MRI, isn't that fairly benign relative because it's not the ionizing radiation scans like the CAT scans throwing 100 x-rays at you at a time, but apparently there's some kind of contrast injection or substance that's a heavy metal gadolinium that was poisoning this poor woman that she couldn't detoxify from it. Yeah, and gadolinium is a very common contrast media that is used in many of these different studies. Um, and gadolinium and thallium are the two most commonly used, and both of those are considered heavy metals. They're, they consider trace earth elements, but they are heavy metals, and both of them in excess can cause a lot of detrimental changes in a person. Well, is, is this something, uh, yeah, I'm sure you were aware of it, but, I mean, the point is, if, if I'm to think, you know, from an outsider as a homeopath, I mean, I don't do MRIs or CAT scans. Of course, I, I've referenced out my dad, my, let me say this, my dad's brother, my uncle, who told me not to become a doctor. He was a nuclear medicine specialist. He read all of that stuff. Uh, but the idea of an MRI seemingly more benign or, or, or less harmful because you're not doing ionizing radiation in the scan, but the, the gadolinium, as a, and they say they don't give it to everybody. Not everybody gets the contrasting agent. And so is it, are people, are docs well aware? Because it, it, in this case, it seemed like no doctor could figure out what was wrong with this woman. Well, it is a major issue. It's something that, I wasn't aware of 20 years ago, but about um, before I became the chairman for the American Board of Clinical Metal Toxicology, which was back in 2000, and I guess probably 2006. So around 2004, 2005 timeframe is when I became more aware of the thallium and the gadolinium issue. And that's really the biggest um that's one of the biggest concerns that I have with doing any of these scans, and that's why in our cancer patients we don't do MRI scans, CT scans. I don't do, um, I don't do the exercise treadmill tests, all because of the contrast media that's used. That's that's a big part of it. You know, when you start looking at things like, for example, the dye that's injected into somebody when they do a, a study to assess vascular perfusion, so when they do a, an arteriogram or when they do an exercise treadmill, that's when they inject a dye into you which has thallium in it, which is the contrast media in that, that case, or in MRI cases, uh, the gadolinium. All of these materials that are being used, they're used to enhance the image that is 
captured on the film because it allows, it's called contrast media because it allows for contrast between the uh, the lumen of whatever they're assessing, whether it's a vessel or the gut or whatever the case is, um, and and then the viscous uh, organs and, and the soft tissue. So it allows to give you a, a, a more... Um, what's the word? So it's, it, not, it's not... not it, it's not for the health of the patient. It's to make it easier to read whatever they're, they're trying to scan. Exactly. It's yeah. to improve the diagnostic capability of those studies. That's exactly right. But the problem is that the elimination of these contrast media is something that is more often a problem than not. And it's always been assumed that it's easy to deal with, but it's not so easy to deal with. And I think you and I have talked about, um, and specifically, specifically in cardiovascular disease, where we've seen people that have blockages, supposedly, on arteriograms when they do the PTCAs, and that, that basically requires a stent placement or more aggressive bypass. That's the conventional thought process. But then when they do the actual procedure, when they go in to operate on the patient, at that point where the occlusion was, which is where the contrast media, you know, you, you see this line of contrast media, and then it narrows and becomes like a string, and then there's nothing past it, and they say that's where the occlusion is, that's where the blockages, that's where the atheroma is formed, right? Mm-hmm. So then, then they go in to operate the person, and they see that there's no occlusion, there's nothing there. So what caused, the, what caused that blockage to be appear on the study? The actual reason was because the contrast media caused a vasospasm, because it's an irritant, and mm-hmm. caused the vessel to contract, almost like a charley horse, you know, you'd get in right. your leg, that thing, yeah. caused yeah. it to, contra- to contract, and that causes an obstruction which is perceived as an occlusion from plaque or, you know, atheroma, whatever it is, and in actuality, it's nothing more than a spasm that the body goes into due to the contrast medium. In response so that's to the heavy like metal. Acute yeah, phase. yeah that, that, well, that's just an acute phase just from an irritant standpoint and a reactant standpoint. Sure. But then you start looking at the heavy metal aspect of it, the elimination of it, aspect of it, the renal implications of it, you know, because it's going through the kidneys, um, and, and secondarily, there may be some uh, hepatic impact as well, but I'm not so sure. I know that definitely there is a renal impact. Well, the liver so can take a lot more crap and, and survive it than the kidneys. If it gets a direct hit by some of this stuff, you can you can destroy the function pretty quickly. And and that's why, you know, it's serious. We, we covered a story yesterday, Dr. Bittar, about the CDC announcing that one in six Americans are on their way to renal failure, are dealing with some form of kidney disease, one in six, and that might be low. And I'm thinking, you know, add this into the mix. And I said, as I've said before about the third leading cause of death being modern medicine, I say it's the first because it causes the second and the first. And you just laid it out beautifully, too, in terms of the diagnostic test, determining that you have a problem that you don't have because the diagnostic test itself caused the problem. Well, this is a very interesting point, talking about the renal disease aspect, because I did not know one out of six Americans are going into renal failure. But now you take that component, what we just talked about with all these contrast media, and then you take yeah. the, non, the, the, the most commonly used um, medication over-the-counter for joint pain, for arthritis. You know, you're talking about aspirin. You're talking about the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories um, like the, the arutuses and the... Um, you know, the Voltaren, which was one of the ones that they used for that basically um, the FDA said it was safe and after 55,000 deaths were confirmed and they finally took it off the market. Yeah. Um, which one was Tox that? Tox 2 inhibiting Vioxx. Vi- yeah, Vioxx, yeah. right. So, you know, there's a lot of these different types of non but the low-dose 
chronic insidious onslaught of the exposure to these medications for these joint pains, it's a constant, constant beating up of the kidneys. So I'm not surprised that it's one out of six, yeah. given the fact that there's so much usage of these non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And then on top of that, we talk, look at the, the contrast media aspects, and there's so many other things that affect the kidneys. Everything mm-hmm. that we take into our bodies, we talk a lot. You and I have talked a lot on the show about the gastrointestinal system and, and the liver. Yes. But everything that we, all liquids, okay, um, of course, they're going through the liver as well. But kidneys, if you think about it, the kidney separates all the waste from everything, basically all the, everything that we ingest into our bodies. The first phase, liver deals with a lot of first phase, second phase, but the kidney breaks down a lot of different things. Heavy metals, for example, it's the vacuoles within the renal parenchyma, within, within the kidney tissue itself, that actually have the highest concentration of heavy metals in any part of the body. Why? Because that's the primary rod of elimination after the gastrointestinal system. When it comes to the, the, the blood system, it's actually the primary way that the blood is clean going through the kidneys. So when you end up having heavy metals in any type of acute toxicity, it's the kidney parenchyma, the tissue of the right. kidneys, that takes the brunt of the force. Oh, yeah, and, so and, and they, get, they diagnose the kidney stuff way more than they do the liver congestion, which is not an official diagnosis, I don't think, in, in at least the way allopathic medicine is practiced thus far. Uh, but you're right, the idea that, uh, the CDC has picked up on this, but the thing is, they're still scratching their heads. They have no idea why, and we know why. You know why. Yeah, I mean, this is a very, very common phenomenon, and you start looking at many of the other types of uh, um, things that we're ingesting on a daily basis and how they can affect the kidneys. The, imp- the impressive thing is that when you start the process of chelation, Robert, the metal level, as you're starting to pull, think of a filter, and think of the filter has a lot of uh, sediment in it. Well, when you start to push stuff through that filter, the sediment is going to be the first thing that pushes out, right? So when you start pushing that sediment out through the filter, you're going to see a greater strain on that particular filter. Same thing in the body. You see an actual impact on the kidney function. You see a worsening of the BUN and creatinine on a a human when you chelate them initially when they've got heavy metals. So you'll see a bump up in the metal levels, I mean, I'm sorry, in the um, kidney function, but then as you continue the process, the kidney function then comes back down to normal and gets lower, becomes even more efficient, because you basically just cleaned out the filter. So yeah. it's, it's a phenomenon that doctors that don't understand how this works, when they see that initial thing, they get, oh, my God, it's affecting the kidneys. No, it's cleaning out the kidneys. It's all the sludge that's moving right. through the filter, and yeah. that's what you're seeing, the bump up in the kidney function. And within two or three weeks, it comes right back down to normal and then goes even lower. And, and it's actually much more efficient than it ever was in the people. I can tell you 80 to 85% of my patients, their kidney functions today are better than they were when 20, 30 years ago because of simply this phenomenon. Well, let's help somebody out with this very thing. Excuse me. I'd like to ask you a few questions. All right, this question of the day is coming from Taffy. She says, greetings, RSB and Dr. Batar. My profound thanks to you all and all your guests. I recently had an oligo scan. I believe that's what she's saying, done by my biological dentist, and it showed high levels of aluminum, lead, mercury, cadmium, and silver. I've been using some silver for the past few years while under the weather. I also have the MTHFR positive, and I've listened to Dr. Batar's talk on it. Evidently, the heavy metals won't come out till the methylation cycle is functioning as it should. The results were high cardiovascular risk, acidosis, and global heavy metal intoxication. Mainstream medicine doesn't understand this. I greatly appreciate any suggestions. And on top of it, I'm extremely fatigued and very out of it. Thank you very much and love to you all, Taffy. 
All right, Dr. Bittar, we're really almost up on a break on this. I want you to think about this because it builds on what we've just been discussing. Another diagnosis of a heavy metal burden in someone who, well, just like any of us, could be exposed through any number of routes, but it could be modern medicine, too. It could be dentistry. So let's talk about in detail how we can help Taffy and others that are suffering in this way or who have been poisoned by gadolinium or thallium. Dr. Batar is going to help us out with some more advanced medicine. Check it out. MedicalRewind.com will get you some easy access to hundreds of hours of archives. Coming right back. Who'd you say that masked man was? It's a bird. It's a plane. Robert Scott Bell. Here I come to save the day. bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. All right, we had a question of the day from Taffy here with Dr. Bittar on board. And, you know, it's a theme and obviously a subject we've covered many times over the years. But with this uh, gadolinium uh, news break, because I haven't actually explored this with you on the air, uh, and then referencing all the other aspects of kidney uh, burden and then the CDC coming out, one in six have some form of kidney problems that could lead to renal failure in lifetime, uh, we're beginning to, get, to see this picture. The picture's coming clearer all of the time. The things you've been saying, the things you've written about in your international best-selling book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. And, and so as Taffy asks some of these questions, she may already know some of this, but it might be a little bit of a replenisher for those that are longtime listeners and, and new for the new listeners. Yeah, so the, to specifically answer the, her question, um, when it comes to the legal scan, so legal scan is looking at it's basically um, spectrophotometry. It's using light and how the light bounces off uh, various substances within the tissue. Um, and we basically did all the original research for the legal scan, and um, pretty much everything in legal scan that came through North America came through us um, for the first couple of years. So all the training videos for the for providers and such, those are all done. I did all those training videos. So the first thing is when you see the high levels of aluminum, lead, mercury, cadmium, and silver that Taffy mentions showed up in the legal scan, then she makes the conclusion that um, that these metals are not coming out. When you see them high on a legal scan, that actually is an indication that those metals are moving. So okay. when you're doing the oligoscan, scan, it's actually looking specifically at one area of the body. It's looking at the left hand, and it's all based upon the it's all based upon the how the light bounces off. It's specific to the person's blood type. And uh, Robert, you, you, can you can well, you whatever you just that? did, man? I can hear you way better. Like you were off okay, in the distance with a bird in the jungle before. Well, that's exactly, I was just going to say that that bird in the jungle, that's my son's cockatoos that are sitting there. Obviously, I'm not in the office at 8 o'clock in the evening, but that's my son's birds, and I shouldn't have been that close anyway. That wasn't a woman screaming in the background in a dungeon or something. That was Super Don, next, next week with Dr. Batar, welcome to the jungle. I want that as yeah. an audio clip ready for Dr. Batar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm going to go out there and shoot that bird, but anyway, I think it's telling me that it wants to be fed. Anyway, so when you're looking at the metals on the, on the spectrophotometry, when those levels are showing up high, that actually means that there's a mobilization occurring. So in, 
in Chinese medicine, for example, the palms of the hand and the soles of the feet are organs of detoxification. Mm -hmm. So when you're seeing higher levels of those metals, that's actually not a bad sign. See, when people see high levels of any kind of metal, the first component, the first initial visceral response is, oh, my God, my metals are high. But you have to remember that if the metals are high on testing, especially Mm -hmm. on a post-challenge type test, that's a good sign because at least they're coming out. It's when you're sick and the heavy metals are low, mm-hmm. that's when you should be concerned because that indicates it's not coming out. Right, and of course, she says she's fatigued. Of course, your, your metabolism, if I could say it, is mobilized to do some work that's a little extra than when you're not having to detoxify these things. And, and another aspect of this one, you, you, know, you talk about a challenge test, right? We've talked about a chelation challenge test, that a lot of times you'll know somebody is heavy metal toxic, but you might do a, 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 a blood, a, a hair analysis, a saliva, I don't know, whatever, even urine. And it's like not until you do the challenge, then suddenly it starts dumping out because the body was very reluctant to release it. That's exactly right. So you've got both those components. Then on top of that, This is a biological dentist that did the test, which means that she's having some type of dentistry done, so her load is being released even more on top of that. So the fatigue can be explained um, not only from the mobilization, but the increase in mobilization from the the, um, uh, amalgam removal process or the manipulation of whatever is happening in the mouth from the dentist. So you've got a couple of different things going on. The fatigue aspect of it uh, overall Obviously, somebody who has mercury exposure, and if she has dental amalgams in, she doesn't mention whether she has amalgams in or not. But as anybody who has amalgams in, at a certain point, that you know, it's what, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back type of a scenario, mm-hmm. you can have so much outgassing. It's five to nine nanograms per deciliter per tooth per day that's outgassing per amalgam. So that's a lot of mercury that's being expo- that an individual is being exposed to. And at what point does it basically break the camel's back type of scenario? Sure, so sure. So there's a lot of explanations as to why she's having the fatigue. Taffy, great question. And by the way, of all the things you listed, aluminum, lead, mercury, cadmium, and silver, silver at least is benign, at least in all of the peer-reviewed literature I've reviewed and also seen clinically. Uh, but it really it sounds like because it was done by a Lego scan, things are being mobilized, and you may already be doing good work to... Escort the stuff out your body by helping your liver and your kidneys and chelating. Hopefully sweating, too. Far infrared or otherwise. We've got blood immunotherapy for cancer coming up next. The Robert Scott Bell Show. In all my years of radio, I've never seen anything like this. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Information is so good, it requires no expiration date. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Each week we crank it up, do some advanced medicine with Dr. Rashid Batar. You can find him online, Dr. Batar, B-U-T-T-A-R.com, as well as uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours now of great advanced medicine segments here on the radio show. Go to medicalrewind.com. Of course, uh, all of those also available through GCN, our syndicator and broadcast radio, as well as iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn. You got uh, Talk 365 on the weekends, as well as UK Health Radio in the United Kingdom, and SoundCloud right here at robertscottbell.com. Now, Dr. Batar, we're just covering a story uh, I thought was pretty interesting because we've talked about your therapy that you work with uh, for people coming to you that have cancer, and it includes what, what's known as immunotherapy. 
And I'm reading the CBS News article coverage, and they're going, immunotherapy with the blood? Are they finally catching up? Is this for real, or are they getting it wrong? Are they getting it sort of right? I want your perspective on it, because not many people will read this and really understand what is totally going on here. Well, I think that they're, they're onto the right thought process. When they started first talking about immunotherapy 10, 12 years ago, they were on the right process, but the problem is they're trying to create a one-size-fits-all, and it just doesn't work that way because cancer is very specific to the individual's DNA. It's very, you could have a thousand people that are the same height, same weight, same eye color, same hair color, same everything. They look identical to each other. They all have the same type of cancer, yet the cancer will be all, everyone's cancer is going to be different because that cancer, even though it's site-specific and histologically it's identical, it's still specific to that individual's DNA. So we target our treatment to that person's specific DNA, meaning that we harvest from them and we create the treatment for them. This, in this particular case, they've said some key things that are, that are accurate, um, and some of the problems that they highlight, they are absolutely correct. For example, one of the things that they say is that the key to the immune, uh, the, the T-cells are the key to the immune system, and they're exactly correct on that. Uh, one of the biggest challenges, according to the article, one of the biggest challenges in fighting cancer has been the cancer cells find ways of becoming invisible to the body's defenses. That statement is also accurate. But the problem is that when they start to look at, in this particular case, what they're doing is they're looking at certain components of the T-cells that they use to cause the T-cells to essentially um, um, have elicit a certain reaction. So they call them checkpoint inhibitors, and essentially what they're doing is they're releasing these checkpoint inhibitors or releasing the break that allows a T-cell to start to continue to do, you know, do, do its job. Well, the problem is there's two types of T-cells. There's T-helper cells and there's T-suppressor cells. So, yes, you do want to break one and you want to stimulate the other one, but they're creating... Um, uh, a balanced situation where by releasing the T-cells, if the T-cells still can't recognize the cancer as being foreign, they still have missed that one point. So we're doing immune modulation treatments. That's our third step in our treatment program. But the fourth step is target acquisition. So we have, we have a method to help the body identify the foreign cells as being the ones to attack selectively as opposed to dealing with um, a rampant overstimulation of the immune system. And they go on in this article, and they say that's actually one of the biggest problems. Um, it goes on to say that, um, let's see, there's uh, the well, side as effects you, as, that they we're talking about. Yeah, as you get there, Dr. Patar, I just want to make sure I understand, because you've been working with this for a long time. Is this a, a, a process of the FDA and doctors sort of catching up in a little way? That they're, they're, they're taking some of these ideas and, and improving upon other therapies that are absolutely disastrous, but not taking it as far as we do in advanced medicine. Oh, it's, they're not even, it'll take them another 20 years to catch up, but we're also advancing what we're doing. Um, the, part, the part that they've got, you know, there's, there's things to learn from this, but there's also things that they have missed. For example, um, doctors must, this is an exact quote from the article, doctors must learn to manage potentially life-threatening side effects from an overstimulated immune system. Now, that statement in itself shows really that they don't understand what's going on because what you're dealing with is when the immune system actually recognizes the cancer it's not an overstimulated immune system the immune system is finally recognizing what's foreign and blast it but the but that conflict to that war if you will because we just identified what the enemy is and now we go after it can be potential if, if it's not regulated or done in a in a metered way can be detrimental because of individuals kidneys and liver and gut right. can't 
withstand the onslaught because of the rapid yes. attack. That's well, one thing. The, the, this is where, by, by the way, my good friend who passed from this plane, you know, Dr. Nick Gonzalez was always, he was you know, a smart guy. He knew exactly what you're saying, too. And he said, you know, I had his patients on coffee enemas. He said they had to have detoxification support because the danger was, as you enhanced immunity and targeted that immunity, there would be a devastating, you know, debris field that had to be removed exactly. rapidly from the body. Exactly. And that debris field that you just referred to elicits almost a septic-like reaction because all that garbage has to go somewhere. And if it doesn't go somewhere, then it's polluting the system. And that can be in itself detrimental. But then on top of that, how much tumor mass do you break down? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like literally poisoning the body. Right. And so these are, these are aspects of it. Another thing that they talk about in here, they said also concerning the small number of deaths from brain swelling and unexplained complication that forced another company, uh, Juno Therapeutics, to halt their development. Now, here's the thing. When you end up taking a hammer and hitting somebody's knee, what's going to happen? It's a natural response. The knee's going to swell. The, the inflammatory cascade is a natural response that the body does in order to protect that area. So in the joint, in your knee, when it swells up, it's to protect and uh, insulate that joint because it's it's been attacked or it's been hit or it's been traumatized so what happens in the brain uh, especially with brain cancers is that when the cancer is identified and the treatment starts to work it's basically the way it's working is one it's identifying what's foreign and then two it attacks it selectively that causes edema that causes swelling a natural response to healing the problem is inside the brain it's a limited area you've got the cranium you know the skull and then you've got the brain inside it. So when there's swelling, it's not like swelling in your arm or on your stomach or your leg where it's, it can expand. It's limited to where it can expand. It can only expand um, ventrally. It can't expand any other way because the cranium, the, the, the skull, is, is fixated. Right. So when, then it causes what, what we call a herniation. The, the brain swells, causes herniation, and the person can die from that herniation. And we have actually, back in 1998, 1999, 2000, 2001, when we were developing this, we actually have seen this. We've actually had um, patients that have gotten better initially, but as the treatment continues, then the swelling of the brain, that has been the problem. It, it, and it could, be, it could be like just a small little amount. That's why you've got to go really, really slow, because you've got to be able to make sure that that swelling is in a controlled manner. It's very difficult, because once it starts, you can't control it. It's not like you can dial it back. So you've got to go baby, baby steps so that that brain uh, swelling can be accommodated. That it, once you go beyond that accommodation point, you're going to cause a herniation. So these are you know, the, obviously what they're doing, they're on the right track because they're experiencing some of those side effects. Uh, and these aren't really side effects of immune therapy. This is part of how the immune system works. This is how the body works. And so we have to be cognizant of it, and we have to work around it to make sure that the body's own compensatory mechanisms don't cause a detrimental, uh, undesired effect. So these are known metabolic pathways, very predictable, but they're just stumbling onto it. And I find yes. it very ironic that the one thing they deny in terms of the hardcore allopathic skeptics, you know, our focus on detoxification has been ridiculed tremendously. You, you know, you've had to deal with it even within, the, you know, the medical board that they, they kind of laugh it off. and They say detox. Ha ha. That's silly. That's only if you're on hard drugs from, you know, addiction. But this is what we're dealing with, our detox pathways, and that's the difference between life and death in a successful cancer therapy. Yeah, I think that detoxification in any condition, in any medical condition, in any disease process is essential because you first have to get the garbage out of the way. It is, no matter what advanced treatments they have for any type of a disease process, unless they are addressing the issue of toxicity, 
they're going to miss the boat. For example, let's look at using stem cells to enhance recovery, to improve uh, healing process. I can tell you that stem cells, same stem cells used in another clinic and used in our clinic, you're going to get a three to four times, you're talking about 300 to 400% better result in our clinic than any other clinic. Why? Because we're cleaning up the system. It's, it's no different than, you know, a, a, a mechanic that basically cleans all the different parts as he puts them in, as opposed to having rusty, uh, oily, uh, you know, metal that's, that's not smoothed over. Yeah, you, you it, can put the put same high-quality oil in, and if you haven't cleaned the debris beforehand, that same quality oil is going to work a little bit better or a lot better in the one that you prepared the way for it. Exactly. Or if it's not been cleaned at all, it's going to be work, you know, there's no point even doing the oil change yeah. because you just put it into garbage. Yeah, exactly. So, yes, exactly. That, that, that's, that detoxification is an essential point of dealing with any disease process. And here's the bigger th- point, Robert. Prevention mm-hmm. is the key. If we can clean up the system before any chronic disease begins, we can actually prevent the onset of many of these diseases just from the cleanup process. Yeah. Well, that's and it's the, the same thing. The clean, that, Dr. Batari, for having a clean diet, clean, yeah. clean water, etc. So the same concept that works in, a, in an acute phase disease is too. If, you, if you're truly vitally healthy and you succumb temporarily to an insult or assault, whether it be a toxicological or if you want to call it a pathogen burden suddenly due to exposure, you can feel really rotten along the way because your excretory organs are taxed in the process of clearing the debris from that temporary assault. Now we're dealing with a chronic the degradation disease and cancer and systems that have been corrupted so severely over a lifetime that we cannot expect just killing the cancer to be sufficient, which is, again, why chemotherapy is such a disaster, because it takes that immunotherapy concept, concept, which is a step in the right direction, but it just throws it on its head because we're poisoning the body even more disastrously on top of what would happen if we successfully kill the cancer cells. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is not just applicable in cancer, but in all disease processes. So your comment about the acute phase and how bad we can fa- feel during the acute phase, here's the thing. If, you are, if you've been living a clean life and you start feeling really, really sick and you've been exposed to something acutely, that's a blessing. Remember we talked about mm-hmm. this a couple of weeks ago about how the symptomology, should, it, we should be embracing that because it's our feedback mechanisms that the ultimate engineer, the creator, designed for us to get information back so that we know what to do. And actually, if you start feeling really bad and you've been living a clean life, that's a good sign because that means that you've just been exposed to something, you're flushing it, and within three to five days, you're going to feel better. And, and what you should do if you feel that happening, that's when you get into an area with clean air and deep breathing in and out, mm-hmm. lymphatic breathing. When you take a deep breath in, your stomach yeah. should come out. Put your hand in your abdomen. Clean water. You know, go on just mm-hmm. eating um, Stay away from dairy and stay away from, like, you know that I don't tell people stay away from dairy, they stay away from meat. I'm mm-hmm. not a vegetarian. I don't believe in that type of diet. But if you've got an acute onslaught, that's yep. when you just stay with vegetables, organic, yes. clean food, clean eating, exactly. sleep, and you're going to feel a lot better in three to five days. Yep. I got a call from a friend earlier today with a daughter uh, who's about five, six years old, uh, been throwing up, fever, right, an acute response, otherwise healthy, clean kid, right? I say give a dose of Bryonia Alba first, and then you can do the Belladonna. These are homeopathic remedies, but the Bryonia, why? Because it's liver congestion. Clear the liver. They'll recover faster, even in acute situations. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show.
Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. Remember, archives all over the place, including at SoundCloud at robertscottbell.com, GCN, as well as Medical Rewind, specific to our advanced medicine sessions with Dr. Rasha Bittar. Put your thinking caps on, man. Classes in session, even though in the Northern Hemisphere you're on summer break. We don't take that break here. We keep that uh, broadcast healing going. Now, final uh, story of the day, Dr. Bittar, relates to the flu shot scam. Uh, interesting article off of Health Impact News. We have it linked up in the show notes at robertscottbell.com. It says, repeated flu shots decrease antibody response. More evidence that annual flu shots are worthless. We, we didn't need more evidence because we already knew that, but it's interesting that a new study out of Australia is showing that if you keep getting these things, if you really want an antibody response, not that that's the be-all, end-all, but for them it is, you're not even getting it. Yeah, this is um, interesting because the first problem is we know that the flu shot is based upon an extrapolation of um, futuristic data that's being pre- – it's a predictive model is what they're using. So You're being kind. It's the- a guess. It's a dartboard. Throw it on the dartboard. Yeah, yeah, it's it, exactly, except that in a dartboard, you know, you've got so many places you can hit. This is like one in 5,000 of the viruses we know of, and there's probably another 15,000 we don't even understand or recognize yet. So it literally is, you know, you'd be, you would be, it's like the, chi- the uh, chimpanzee study that they did with the predictive prediction of the stock market, and the chimpanzees repetitively picked better than all the um, fund <laughs> the managers. The human stockbrokers, right? Yeah. Exactly. And it was just, you know, they were just throwing darts up and they, they looked at the chimpanzee mechanism. They were literally throwing darts at something and that whatever they were hitting, they were, they were um, you know, the fund managers were investing in that and they were coming, becoming um, much more profitable than their counterparts that were using predictive models. So we know that that in itself is just worthless the way that they do it. Then on top of that, the desensitization, which is what this study is talking about, that's a different component that, you know, really I haven't taken into consideration. You and I haven't really talked about that before, but it is a very interesting and valid point. It's very similar to in cancer. When you give people chemotherapy, it doesn't seem to kill the stem cells and makes the stem cells more resistant to that chemotherapy. So it's the old adage, what doesn't kill you only serves to make you stronger. In that case, it's actually, because it's not killing the cancer, it's only making the cancer more resilient and more mutagenic and adaptogenic so it can uh, adapt to its changing environment. But Mm -hmm. here, this would be a similar type of phenomena where the virus is either becoming resistant to um, the the vaccine or to the the antibody response because it's constantly desensitizing it. Think of it like the venom. And snake venom, you can actually give people low-dose snake venom to make them uh, essentially immune to snake venom. But that's the immune, that's the use of venom therapy to put a person into a situation the that way they may be exposed to, exactly desensitizes them to that poison when and if they become um, uh, a victim to of it. a snake bite. But yeah, in this case, they're saying that the repeated flu shots is causing their own immune system to go. What, what's the point, right? You're going to keep hammering with this. I'm not even going to react anymore. It's ridiculous. Well, it's the same phenomena, though. See, because it, what it's doing is it's desensitizing the immune system, so the immune system is not going to fight anything because there's nothing to it. Okay, that's, they're saying one thing, but it could be because of this other aspect, or it could be literally that you're, it's like a boy crying wolf. Okay, there's mm-hmm. nothing for the immune system to do. It's desensitized. The mechanism of that desensitization, I don't know what it is, and I don't think they elucidated here, but no. you can see how there's so many different aspects. It makes total logical sense. 
Whether the reasoning behind it, why it's happening, is sound or not, I don't know. But it makes complete sense because it could be the boy crying wolf. It could be the, uh, the venom issue. It could be any of these things um, that desensitize the system and the system is not able to uh, either react because it's been desensitized or, two, it says there's no reason to react because, you know, it's been false alarms. The whole aspect of the antibody-antigen response is that once you've been exposed to it the first time, it, it creates the antibody. The next time, the antibody's already circulating, so it doesn't need that seven to ten days of, of creating itself. It's already ready to execute. So in this particular case, it could be that there's no reason that it's a desensitization of the antibody, but the antibody's just not going to react, or it's downregulation of it. You know, who knows what it is? But the point is, it makes total sense. Yeah, and it's stronger evidence that anytime you hear a flu shot, you think the word fail, and you're on the right track. Flu shot yeah. failure, by definition, don't fall for it. There are better ways to prevent flu, much less respond appropriately to overcome it should it actually happen. And in most cases, we know flu is just a catch-all phrase for somebody who is, uh, well, been overwhelmed because they've overconsumed the wrong kind of food during the holiday season, for instance. It's a story we'll get to again. I'm certain of that. All right, Dr. Batar, another great advanced medicine episode here. Everybody go to medicalrewind.com or robertscottbell.com. We have archives linked up for you. And Dr. Batar, I'm going to leave it to you to tell them what they need to know before we got to go. That the power to heal is unequivocally yours. The Robert Scott Bell Show.